Everything we just sang goes right along with this sermon series. I can't think of a more timely series or a more needed series for many Christians uh, around the world and in our church family here today. But we're going to read 2 Chronicles 15, verse 7. This is our springboard text for this entire series. And one of the sermons is actually going to be on this text and this verse alone, but, but not today's. 2 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 7. But as for you, be strong and do not give up, for your work will be rewarded. Let's pray for God's blessing upon the preaching of his word. Father, we thank you for the, the gift that is your word. And I pray today uh, that in the next few moments, for those of us who this is just a reminder for, that this may be ingrained in our hearts in a deeper way than ever before. But Father, this may be new to some. This whole idea of not giving up, it's not just a one-time belief or a one-time decision, but this is a lifelong adventure that Satan's going to try to throw everything he can at us to get us to give up. His whole goal is to get us to give up and throw in the towel. But Father, I pray that we are a faithful community of believers in here today and that we are willing to fight back and we are willing to stand for you. It is in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Glad that you're here this morning. Uh, our brotherhood, the, the non-denominational restoration movement, bing, ding, ding, ding. <laughs> well, we had some lighting issues last week, and we'll do it again this week. We're learning. We're learning. Turn to the person next to you and said they have a lot to learn. Just tell the person next to you, they have a lot to learn. <laughs> Don't say they're slow learners. Just say they have a lot to learn. We are, we are kind of slow learners. Our brotherhoods most beloved preacher is this man up here on the screen right here. His name is Wayne Smith. He passed away three years ago, four years ago, two, three, four years ago. He preached in Lexington, Kentucky for over 40 years. His ministry was over 60 years long. He is considered our brotherhood's most beloved preacher. He, he's, he's my second favorite preacher I've ever heard. It is said of him that he taught our brotherhood how to laugh. How many of you know it's important? It's a spiritual attribute to know how to laugh. Do you know that? When the preacher tells a joke, the Bible says to laugh. <laughs> Thank you for laughing right there. <laughs> Just trying to teach our people, okay. Whether you think it's funny or not, you start laughing because God said so. Or it's maybe in there somewhere. Without a doubt, he probably has had a greater influence on uh, our brotherhood in the last hundred years than anybody else. His most famous sermon was a sermon called Playing Hurt. It was actually requested so much that he just started preaching the same sermon at his church every year on Super Bowl Sunday. He entitled it Playing Hurt. And the title of this sermon this morning is, it's, it's after his sermon. I, I'm going to use a couple of his illustrations and a couple of his thoughts, but the title of this is Don't Give Up, Playing Hurt. And here's the question that I want to ask every one of us today. Are you willing to play hurt? Are you willing to play hurt? Are you willing whenever you take a blow that you're not going to take yourself out of the game? There was a, a former football player who tells of a story of his old-time high school football coach. You remember those guys, the, those old-time coaches who were just tough and rough and rugged? And he took, himself, he, he took himself out of the game, and his coach noticed, and this is probably 40 years ago, he took himself out of the game, his coach noticed Tommy, you're, you're out of the game. What are you doing out of the game? He said, Coach, I think I broke my leg. He said, well, get back in there until you're sure. You know, 
Are you willing to play hurt? There are some people in the room right now who are hurt. I know of some of you. I don't know of all of you, but you're here. You're still loving. You're still giving. You're still serving on a team. You're still participating. You're still sacrificing, and you're still a part of the church family. Are you willing to play hurt? Many sports writers consider the greatest football team ever to be a team from Sewanee, Tennessee. It's called the College of the South now, but they actually played in 1899. They went undefeated. They played five games in six days. Can you imagine? Five games in six days, and they didn't play cupcakes. They didn't play on Sunday. They played Texas. They played Texas A&M. They played Tulane, LSU, and Ole Miss. Five games in six days. The final score, if you add it all up together, all five games was 113 to zero. Consider the greatest team to ever play football. You probably never heard of them, have you? They were bloodied, they were bruised, they were beaten, they were beat up, but they, they kept playing. It is said that the most lopsided game ever was actually played between Georgia Tech and Cumberland College. Final score, 222 to zero. Cumberland lost. Georgia Tech looked like animals out there compared to the players on Cumberland College. One of the plays, the quarterback for Cumberland handed it off to his running back, but it, it fumbled and it was rolling around on the ground. And the Cumberland quarterback looked at the running back and said, pick up the ball. And the running back turned around, looked at him and said, you're the one who dropped it. You pick it up. Well, but they kept playing hurt. I remember vividly the very first high school football practice that I coached in, there was a little kid named Antoine. I don't think he'd ever played football before. And the very first practice, the very first drill, and by the way, one of our coaches, I was the only coach, one of our coaches, he played in the 60s. He was an old-time coach, like the one I was just describing. He plays an important part in this story here in just a second. But Antoine uh, was on the team, and we said, okay, first drill, we're going to do a tackling drill. Everybody get in a, and if you played football, you, you already know what I'm talking about. Everybody gets in a circle, and two guys get inside the ring, the, the ring of fire. Thank you, Johnny Cash. And they just tackle each other. They just go head on, and they just hit each other, and it's, and everybody cheers. And Antoine, I don't know what he was thinking, but he volunteered for the very first drill on the very first day of practice, and he got in there, and I think he thought we were just joking around. I think he thought he was just going to go up and they were kind of just hug each other or something and pat each other on the back and kind of play it cool. But the other kid, and I don't remember who it was, he, 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 he wasn't into the hugging thing. And they went at each other. The coach blew the whistle. They went at each other, and he, Antoine got pancaked. I mean, he got crushed. And I went over there, and I just looked down at him, and I could almost see the stars in his eyes. And I heard him say these words, Coach, he hit me. My first day of coach, I didn't know what to say to that. I thought, well, yeah, he hit you. And the other coach came unglued, the guy who coached back in the 60s and played back. He just came unglued. And he, you mean to tell me you came to football practice and you're surprised that you got hit? You're going to get hit for the rest of the day. You're going to get hit for the rest of the week. You're going to get hit for the rest of your life. If, well, you know the drill. <laughs> he just started going off on him. Antoine's eyes, I'm going to keep getting hit. You know, Peter said a similar thing in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. He said it this way, dear friends, don't be surprised if you go to football practice and get hit. Don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. Don't be, don't be shocked if you sign up for football and get tackled. 
And Peter said, don't be surprised if you sign up with Jesus and go through some fiery trials. Now, who wrote that? Peter wrote that. Now, why did he write that? Here's why I think he wrote that. Did you know this? You are a target. Did you know that? The second you started following Jesus, the second you started hanging with Jesus, the second you started a journey with Jesus, you became a target. And what I want to talk about today, and by the way, Peter said that, but who did Peter get that from? Peter got it from Jesus, from walking with Jesus. Jesus was constantly telling his disciples, hey, guys, if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. And if they hate me, they're going to hate you. And if they beat me, they're going to beat. And if they kill me, they're going to. And they did. Every one of them. Don't be surprised, guys. At these fiery, as if something strange, you signed up to walk with me. If they mistreat me, they're going to mistreat you. Don't be surprised at these fiery trials that come your way. What was Jesus telling his disciples? If you're going to walk with me, you're going to have to play hurt because you're a target. Open your Bibles to the book of Job. I want to introduce you to somebody who was a target, literally, and who was willing to play hurt. It looks like the word job in your Bibles. It's really the word Job. If you turn in the middle of your Bibles and run into Psalms or Proverbs, take a left, and you're going to run into it. It is actually, you might learn something here, it's actually the oldest book in your Bible. It's 430 years older than the book of Genesis, the book of Job is. And it's written about a man who became a target, and it's written about a man who wouldn't give up and was willing to play hurt. Job chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. We're going to go through some of the verses, but we can't go through all the verses because you notice in your Bible there are 42 chapters to the book of Job. But there was once a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. That kind of sounds like the Wizard of Oz type of a fairy tale. There was once a man by the name of Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. Let's just take a moment. What does blameless mean? It does not mean perfect. It means that when he sins, he would confess his sin. Therefore, he lived with a clear conscience. That's what blameless means. He was a man of complete integrity. Who you thought he was, he was. Who he was in front of everybody, he was behind closed doors. He feared God. Oswald Chambers once said, the man who fears God fears nothing else. But the man who doesn't fear God fears everything else. And he stayed away from evil. Now, if you ever want a picture or a definition of godliness, circle Job 1.1 in your Bible. There's a picture of a godly man. A man who is blameless, a man who with complete integrity, he feared God, and he stayed away from evil. Job was a godly man. But he was also a wealthy man. Look at verses 2 and 3. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, which, by the way, the 3,000 camels would have been his greatest uh, riches, 500 teams of oxen. That would have meant 1,000 oxen because a team of oxen was two, and 500 female donkeys. And that, why did they want female donkeys? For their milk, and it was because their milk was the, was the caviar of their day. It was the most prized um, food. He also had many servants that would be employees for us today. He was, in fact, the richest person in that entire area. He was a godly man. He was a wealthy man. But look at verse, four, uh, verse 5. Job's sons would take turns preparing feasts in their homes. And they would also invite their three sisters to celebrate with them. When these celebrations ended, sometimes after several days, Job would purify his children. 
He would get up early in the morning and offer a burnt sacrifice for each of them. For Job said to himself, perhaps my children have sinned and have cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. This was a godly man, a wealthy man, and a great dad. He was acting as priest. I don't know if my kids sinned or not, but I'm going to go offer a sacrifice in case my kids did. He was going to bat. He was being a priest to his kids. He was a godly man. He was a wealthy man. He was a great dad. He, he had the attributes and the character of Billy Graham and the riches of Bill Gates. That's Job. Verse 6, one day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Now, I got a question. What's Satan always doing? He's accusing and destroying. It's called the accuser there. That voice in the back of your head that says that sin you committed five years ago isn't forgiven by God. He's still disappointed in you. He's still shaking his head at you. That's not God. That's not the spirit. That's Satan. He is the accuser and he's the destroyer. And he is looking to destroy your life and accuse us of everything that we've ever done. Verse 8, then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? Now, if I was Job, I'd be telling God, would you keep my name out of this? Good night in the morning. Don't bring me up to him. Verse 9, he is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Satan replied to the Lord, yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. You have always put a wall of protection around him and in his home and in his property. You have made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out and take away everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. All right, you may test him. The Lord said to Satan, do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. And what we are about to read is Job becoming a target. He just became a target of Satan, and God allowed it to happen. And here's, here's what Satan is saying to God. God, if you take away his blessing, he's not going to love you anymore. If you take away all the riches, he's not going to follow you anymore. He's going to give up. He's not willing to play hurt. And so here's the question for us today. Are you more in love with the blessing or the blesser? Who's your love to? Is it the blessing or the blesser? If the blessing is taken away, do you walk away from the blesser? That's what Satan's challenging here with Job. That's what he's challenging God. Hey, yeah, you put a hedge of protection around him. You give him everything he wants. He's the richest man in all the earth. He has, he's got a great family, a lot of servants. But if you let me take away the blessing, I think he's going to walk away from the blesser. Do you love the blessing more or the blesser more? That's the question that Satan is posing. Verses 13 through 19, we hear what happens. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the older brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Your oxen were plowing with the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabaeans raided us, they stole all the animals and killed all the farm hands. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this News, three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home. Suddenly a powerful wind, probably a tornado, swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed and all your children 
are dead. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Here's the list of what he just lost in one day, his property, his possessions, his employees, his friends, his children, and his reputation. If you continue to read, and we're not going to continue to read, he lost his reputation with his friends, and eventually God did give him the green light to hurt his health, and he eventually loses his health. Talk about being a target. We wanted to play the victim card. Job could play the victim card, amen? But he played hurt. The largest funeral I think I've done and the hardest funeral I think I've done came on the heels of the best results of a counseling session I think I've ever been involved in. It was a number of years ago when a young couple by the name of Devin and Bobby walked into my office late on a Tuesday night, and, and they, they were broken. And we talked about a lot of things. We talked about their marriage. We talked about their family. We talked about their walk with Christ, and they had been distant from Christ. Uh, but that night, and I, I can't share all the details, but by the end of the night, there were tears, there was a prayer, and there was a rededication to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that rarely happens. You know what usually happens in counseling? But he, but she, but him, but they, but by the end, they had rededicated their life to Jesus. And they had committed themselves to being godly parents who raised their little two-year-old. They had one boy named Dutch. They were told they'd never have another kid. Weren't supposed to be able to have Dutch, but they had him. And they had committed themselves to being godly parents. It was a good night. 36 hours later, I got the phone call from a fireman. Uh, Nathan, they can't find Dutch. It's been a couple hours, and I, I think Chelsea remembers it. I just yelled on the phone, oh, no. And I got in my car, and the second I got in my car, the phone call came again. They just found them at the bottom of the pond in their backyard. And I rushed on gravel roads in southeast Kansas. You're not supposed to go fast on those roads. You'll slip off the road. But I went as fast as I could to their house several miles away. And I remember driving up, and there were cars, fire trucks, police cars on both sides of the house or, 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 or uh, both sides of the driveway. It was hard to find a parking spot, but everybody was outside. Nobody was inside where Devin and Bobby were. And I asked, where are they? They said, inside. And everybody was just stunned. And I remember walking in, and the scene, Devin and Bobby were in the corner, and they saw me, and they got up and they ran, and there was a three-way hug like I've never been in, and there was just screaming. And there was yelling, why? And it was, and I got to tell you, I don't think up to that point I've ever yelled why, but I was yelling why. Is this it? Is this what we do? We rededicate our life to God, and we rededicate ourselves to becoming godly parents, and then a day and a half later, this? What do we do? Really? And a couple days later, they buried their child. You know what? They say that the worst pain in the world is to bury a child. Children are supposed to bury parents. Parents aren't supposed to bury children. And I tell you that story to tell you this. Today, you will find few Christians more dedicated to Christ than Devin and Bobby Barton. From that day forward, they decided we're going to play hurt. And we're not going to give up. And they, be, they implanted themselves in, the, in their local church, and they became involved in a group. They became givers. And even here today, there's a Venture Christian Church here today, and their name is on this church because of the way they have sacrificially, financially given to this body of believers. Devin and Bobby Barton decided to play hurt. They would not give up. 
Can we just take a remainder of our time this morning? And I want to walk through four passages that I found through the 42 chapters of the book of Job that are spiritual snicker bars, rich and sweet, rich and sweet, that I think will be a blessing to each and every one of us. The first one comes right after the passage we just read, Job chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. This, this is going to shock you. If you didn't know this was in your Bible, this might take you for a loop. When Job heard this, the loss of his children, I bet the donkeys didn't matter once he found out his children were gone. I bet the camels didn't matter anymore. He tore his clothes and shaved his head because of his great sorrow. He knelt on the ground and worshiped God and said, we bring nothing at birth. We take nothing with us at death. The Lord alone gives and takes. Now watch this. Praise the name of the Lord. Well, that shouldn't be there. Right after the greatest, right after the worst day any human beings had on the face of the earth, he says, praise the name of the Lord. He says, praise God in a day like that. Rather than pointing fingers, he praised God. And then it goes on in verse 22. In all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. What's the opposite of praise? Blame. Rather than blaming God, he praised God. Now, here, here's what I wrote down after reading this verse. This is what I wrote down. Job's position was a posture of permanent praise. Job's posture was permanently positioned to praise. If life is good, praise his name. If life is bad, praise his name. If life is hunky-dory, praise his name. If life hurts, praise his name. His heart's position was permanently postured to praise Jesus. It's a good verse. Job 13, verse 15, here's another one. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. The idea of hope is a huge idea in Scripture. Did you know that the word hope is used 144 times in Scripture? That is more times than the word belief. We always talk about belief, but here's the deal. Where have you placed your hope? The demons believe, but they haven't put their hope and trust in Jesus. And Job said, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Christ is called the hope of glory in Colossians 1. God is called the God of hope in Romans 15. Isaiah 40 says, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Job 19, verse 25, the third one. I know, everybody say, I know, I know. that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, he will stand on the earth. The oldest book in the Bible gives us the newest theology that we have in the New Testament. Jesus is alive. That's New Testament language, folks. They didn't even have an Old Testament yet when Job was being written. And he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. An interesting paradox, the two words I know is what stood out to me in this. Um, when I was 16, I thought I knew a lot. And I thought in my mind, man, if I know this much now, how smart am I going to be when I'm 37? Wow. Wow, I'm amazing. <laughs> the paradox of all paradoxes is, and, and, and you probably have gathered this, the older you get, the less you know. Or the more you realize you don't know. See, I thought I knew a lot about parenting until I became a parent. You already can understand. The older you get, the less you know. But here's the beauty of that. 
The older you get, what you do know becomes implanted in the convictions of our soul. And at the end of Job's life, he was able to say in the midst of it all, he didn't talk about how to start a great business, though he probably knew how. He said, there is one thing I do know. I do know that my Redeemer lives. God is alive. Do you know that today? I know that my Redeemer lives. Have you heard the name Lou Gehrig? You may have heard of Lou Gehrig because he is nicknamed the Iron Man. He played for the New York Yankees in the 1920s and 30s. He played 2,130 straight games without ever taking a day off. Now, raise your hand if you've worked at your job 2,130 straight days without taking a day off. Not one sick day, not one vacation day, all hands stay down. That, that's amazing. At the end of his career, Lou Gehrig, known as the Iron Man, they... The doctors took x-rays of his fingers, just his fingers, and they found out that all 10 fingers had been broken. Most of them had been broken twice. Some of them had been broken more than twice. But he played hurt. I love people who are willing to play hurt. Don't you? Have you noticed that? You just gain a respect for people who are willing to play hurt. There was a little boy born a genius. He had a tremendous liability, though. It is said of him that he had a huge birthmark on his face, and so his mother was terrified of the day that he would go to school because kids can be cruel. And sure enough, first day of school, little Charles walked in the house weeping, and his mother asked, why are you crying, Charles? He said, the kids at school made fun of me. They made fun of the way I look. And his mom said, Charles, if you study hard and you get an education, someday people will, will respect you. And many years later, at the resignation of the Harvard president, Dr. Charles Eliot said this. He said, the most important day in my life was the day that my mom said, there are some things you can't control, but you can always play hurt. You just have a respect for people who play hurt. Now, here's what I've noticed. It's easy to tell others to play hurt when it's their pain. I mean, put it a different way. This is an easy sermon to preach. <laughs> when it's somebody else's pain. There were two boys who walked into a dentist's office, and the, one of the boys looked at the dentist, and he, he said, doctor or, or, or dentist, we don't want any gas. We don't want a shot. We don't want any anesthesia. We want to come in and get out, just pull the truth, uh, tooth and do it fast. The dentist said, wow, you're a courageous, brave young boy. Point out the tooth to me. And he turned to his brother Albert and said, show him the tooth. You know, <laughs> yeah. It's easy when it's somebody else's pain. Just play hurt. Let me give you an important passage that I ran into this week. This was huge. You won't see this on coffee cups, though. Paul and Barnabas had just left an area. They left Asia Minor. They had won some people to Christ, and then they went back to Lystra to encourage and strengthen the disciples. Look at what is said in Acts chapter 14, verse 22. It says this, They encouraged them, the new Christians, to continue in the faith. Everybody say, continue in the faith reminding them that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Don't see that on posters. How did Paul and Barnabas go back and encourage Christians? They reminded them that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. They were telling them, hey guys, you're going to have to play hurt to enter the kingdom of God. Can I, can I teach that to you this morning? Would you give me your ear for just a second and let me teach you three things? that you need to know. Number one, you will be hurt. Amen? It's coming. If it's not right now, it's coming. But it gets worse. Number two, 
you will be hurt by Christians. I wish that wasn't so, but that's coming. The largest hurts in my life have come from fellow believers. But you're going to have to make a decision on whether or not you're going to give up and play hurt. And it gets worse. What an encouraging message and a great day to come to church, right? You will be hurt. You will be hurt by Christians. And you will be hurt by Christians here. That's coming too. Anytime you sign up for a team, anytime you volunteer, anytime you decide to put your, your soul into something, I, I, I can guarantee you this. Somebody here is going to hurt you. Somebody's going to make a statement. Somebody's going to make a comment. It's going to be an under-the-breath comment one day, and it's going to hurt you. I usually tell people within one year of joining a new church, you will be hurt in that first year. It is rare that that doesn't happen. That is not unique to us. That was happening in the New Testament. And Paul and Barnabas were encouraging the Christians, you must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Don't give up. Be willing to play hurt. I told you I'd give you four from the book of Job. Here's the fourth one, and it's the best one. Job chapter 42, verse 5. This is good stuff. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Last chapter, right before he dies, my ears had heard. I, I knew a lot about you, God. I, I could have wrote a Sunday school lesson for you, God. I, I could have told people about you, God. I had a lot of head knowledge, a lot of intellect. But now that I've walked through the storm, now that I've played hurt, now that I refuse to give up, now my eyes have seen you. Everybody talks about, I want to see God. I want to see God. I want to experience God. I want to have him out. That's how you do it. You play hurt. You keep going when you don't want to go. There will come a day that you will be worn out. There will come a morning you don't want to come to church. There will come a day you want to quit. There will come a day that you want to give up. There will come a day that this hurts too much. I'm out of here. But if you want to experience God and you want to see God and you want to know the power of God, do what Job did. My eyes had heard, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. That's how you know God. Through brokenness and through pain and through hurt, you get to know the living God in a way that you never get to know him outside of it. Would you stand with me this morning? I want us to read a passage, a New Testament version of Job. I want us to read this out loud from James chapter 1, verse 12. Everybody together. God will bless you if you don't give up when your faith is being tested. One more time. God will bless you if you don't give up when your faith is being tested.